0: Welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about Robert Wise's 1963 cult classic, The Haunting. I talk about the source material for the film, which is Shirley Jackson's 1959 novel, The Haunting of Hill House. I talk about why I love the book so much and I talk a bit about Shirley Jackson and her life because she is one of my favorite writers. But then I really dig into the film. I give some information about the behind the scenes of it and the filming of it and then I talk about why in my second viewing of this film, I found it to be a really powerful portrait of psychological disintegration, but also a film that looks at grief and guilt and mental illness and a woman who is really searching for a home, searching for belonging. So I hope that you will listen to the full episode and that you will enjoy it. I worked really hard to research it and put it all together for you. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast and the work that I'm doing on a monthly basis and you can also access rewards and extras. I put a lot of time into Her Head in Films. It's almost like a part-time job, really. I spend at least one to two hours a day on on it, whether it is watching the film, researching things about the film, recording the episode, editing the episode, planning the social media and different posts. It is a lot of work and if you have a few dollars that you'd like to chip in each month, you get all kinds of extras. You get extra episodes. I have merchandise. I have all kinds of things for patrons so please consider that. It would really be helpful to me. You can find more information at patreon.com slash her and films. That's patreo ncom back her head in films. At one level you get a shout out on each episode so I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons Aaron, Rachel, Tyler, Max, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all for your support. If financial support is not an option, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it on a future episode of the podcast, and I'll leave out your name just to protect your privacy. You can also tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films. If you love the podcast, please share it spread the word, tell people. You never know how they might connect with it as well or it might expose them to some different films. I'd love to reach as many people as possible because I'm really passionate about what I do on the podcast. Or you can just send me an encouraging message through social media or comment or interact with me in a positive way. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and you can see links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So before I get into talking about the haunting, I'm going to talk a bit about some breaking news on October 26th. 2018, this year, word came that the film streaming site Filmstruck is shutting down and and ceasing operation at the end of November. This was shocking news. Devastating news, really. And I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk about what Filmstruck means to me. And so you're going to hear that next. Then I'm going to talk about Shirley Jackson and some behind the scenes stuff about The Haunting. And then I'm going to talk about the film itself. Why I love it. Why it's so powerful, why I think it's so frightening, why I think it absolutely deserves that cult status that it has. So here we go. little segment on short notice because just a few days before I'm sharing my episode on the haunting some big news has dropped. For me it dropped like a bombshell. I could not believe it when I got word that Filmstruck is shutting down. Now Filmstruck was a partnership between Turner Classic Movies and the Criter- and the Criterion Collection. It started in late 2016 I think around October, November of 2016, the site started. And now, October 26th, 2018, we got the news that it was shutting down. At first, I didn't believe it. At first, I thought it was like a Halloween prank because it's coming close to Halloween. It's like my mind couldn't fathom it. It didn't seem like it was possible that this website that I've used really ever since its inception and one that I've promoted on the podcast just because I love it. I didn't have any connection with Filmstruck. I didn't get anything in return for mentioning uh, the website on my podcast because I don't do that. It was just something that I loved that I used and that I wanted to let all of you know about. And a lot of the films that I covered on the podcast in the last few years, the Larissa Shapitko episode with Wings, that was on Filmstruck. The LM Klimov episode about Come and See, I saw Come and See through Filmstruck. So uh, Desert Hearts, that was on Filmstruck. Film after film that I've covered on the podcast from La Ventura, Cleo from 5 to 7, all these films have been on Filmstruck and that's how I've primarily accessed them. So for me, it's heartbreaking because this is a service that I rely on for the podcast, really, but also just for my personal love and enjoyment and education as a cinephile. This was a cinephile's paradise. You've got all kinds of amazing foreign films, classic films, And it was affordable. And you just had access to all these films by these great directors. And I thought Filmstruck had done a good job spotlighting women. Spotlighting films outside of America. Outside of the West and the English speaking world. Those films matter. Films in other countries Films outside of America, outside of a Western perspective, matter. And it matters that people should engage with those films that are in other languages, that are about different experiences. That is a big reason why I love arthouse cinema, because I like hearing stories, I like experiencing the world from different perspectives, from different viewpoints. And getting outside of my own experience, I think it creates in understanding. I think it creates empathy. These films are important and I wanted to share a quote from the Variety story that talked about why this is happening, why Filmstruck is shutting down. It says, quote, the move appeared to be the latest by Warner Media under AT&T's ownership to streamline operations by cutting niche-oriented business ventures. Two sources familiar with the decision said the plan to kill filmstruck was made prior to AT&T's closing the Time Warner deal. In any case, the strategy aligns with the new Warner Media Blueprint to shift resources to mass-market entertainment services, unquote. So this is really the product of a merger, and it's the product of a corporate decision. And it's really scary to think how the history of film, uh, these gems and these classics of film history and also world cinema, how they are really threatened by the whims of corporate profits and corporate greed and really impersonal, indifferent decision makers. These are not people who love film. These are not passionate cinephiles and yet they get to make decisions about who can see these films and who can't. Unfortunately, Netflix and Hulu and a lot of other streaming services are starting to go more towards original content. They don't want to license from other places. Netflix is the biggest example. They have original films. They have original television series. That is the direction they are going in. They have slashed the foreign films, the classic films, and the art house films in their catalog. I've witnessed it myself over the past seven years. I started to become very serious about arthouse cinema in 2011. Now what's interesting about that is that around that time, 2011-2012, the Criterion Collection was on Hulu. They were part of it. That is how I primarily watched a lot of the art house films that I started to get interested in. But I also was able to see arthouse films on Netflix at that time. They had Andre Tarkovsky. They had Ingmar Bergman. I specifically remember watching Hour of the Wolf on Netflix. So there were different arthouse offerings on Netflix that are not there anymore. And a criticism that I did have about Filmstruck was that it was really segregating and separating arthouse cinema into a separate subscription, into a separate world, where really the people who were going to subscribe to that already knew about arthouse. And I think going forward, we need to think about as cinephiles, I think. Well, I think we need to think more about conversion. <laughs> I think we need to think more about how can we get more people interested in these films? Because if they are walled off in a separate service, and they're away from where millions or hundreds of millions of people are accessing films, what, what does that mean for the preservation of these films? Because think of it. Think about Spotify. That is the way young people now consume music. They may also use Google Play and iTunes. Well, if you're an artist who's not on Spotify or iTunes, a good example would be Aaliyah. Aaliyah, she she died um many years ago. She was an R&B artist. I really love her. Somebody has control over her music. I I read an article about it. I don't know the full story. It might be somebody in her family holds the rights to her music. And they have made it so that her best work is not available on Spotify. You cannot listen to Try Again and uh, all of these really great songs, Rock the Boat, all these great songs by Aaliyah, it's harder for young people to discover her music. If you are not on those services, it's harder for you to get discovered. It's harder for you to remain relevant. Well, I would make an analogy with Art House Cinema and like Netflix and Hulu. Everybody's on, everybody has a subscription to Netflix and Hulu. A lot of people do. Just like a lot of people have subscriptions to Spotify and Google Play and things like that. Well, if you have walled off these films and put them somewhere else, the majority of people cannot discover them. And that's a shame. That is a real shame that somebody on Netflix or somebody using Hulu could not have a really great discovery. Because I myself, when I was young, I discovered films randomly thanks to Turner Classic Movies. I'm so glad that channel existed when I was growing up and that it still exists because you have no idea if one night somebody could just be flipping through channels and they come across Ca- Casablanca or they come across Singing in the Rain, you know, you, you just, and and that could be their moment. That could be their awakening the way it was for me when I saw The Passion of Joan of Arc. And it's not something I planned. The same is sort of similar with these streaming sites that the algorithms are. Just anybody going through the different genres. You could just come across a film that interests you and bam, you can become a cinephile and your life can change with one film. As much as I love Filmstruck and I'm grieving and I'm mourning it, going forward, I'd really love to see a way for these films to be available to mass audiences. And I know that not everybody appreciates them, but I'm saying we need more converts we need as many people as we can get that value these films and that understand why Ingmar Bergman matters, why Agnes Varda matters, why Ida Lupino matters. You get what I'm saying? I love Filmstruck. I, I mourn it deeply, but it just, it, it makes me really sad. Uh, so I had my criticisms that, you know, Filmstruck was this separate service but I, I still love it. It didn't change any of my love for it. But I think going forward, we need to think about how can we make more of these films available to more people? Because Amazon Prime, Hulu, and Netflix are not really interested in it. There's, there's slim pickings if you want to see classic films. And if you want to see art house or foreign films on some of these streaming sites, I've actually noticed that Hulu's been doing a little bit better. I've noticed quite a lot of art house films on Hulu recently, and you might want to check that out. They just got the Claire Denis film "Let the Sunshine In" with Juliette Binoche. I I've seen all, a lot of different recent art house foreign films on Hulu and so maybe they're stepping it up a little bit but it's not enough. So losing Filmstruck is just heart like I feel devastated, I'm going to be honest. When the news came, first of all I didn't believe it at first and then it started to sink in <laughs> and it's going to cease operations at the end of November of 2018. This service had become part of my life. It was not about an algorithm. It was about people who were curating these films. They were coming up with themes. They were spotlighting certain directors. They they were doing a really great job. They were spotlighting certain actors and actresses. They had, you know, films by Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. They had films by David Lean and Agnes Varda and all these different people. It was curated. There was love and time and thought put into this service, and I know it was a labor of love for the people who were involved in it, which makes it even sadder that the decision to dismantle it and to destroy it was made in such a corporate, you know, cold way that was the complete antithesis of what this service was, which was about celebrating film. And are there other really great streaming sites that I love? Absolutely. I love Fandor. I love Mubi. I was doing Netflix DVD for a while and I stopped that because I, I can't afford all this. <laughs> but that was really great. That could be an option. I know that Netflix DVD does have Criterion Collection titles on it if that interests you. So there are many other streaming sites out there. And like I said, Netflix and Hulu, they do have some classic. Amazon Prime does too. I'm not saying they don't. They have some arthouse and some classic. But there was really nothing like Filmstruck. Of just having access to hundreds and thousands of classic, foreign, independent films. Like, it was special. It was thoughtful. It was created by cinephiles for cinephiles. And I don't know what's going to happen going forward. I don't know what the Criterion Collection might do. I know that there's a petition up right now to try to save Filmstruck. I will try to cover this story as it develops for you. But but as I am recording right now, it's going to end. And we do not know what is going to happen with the Criterion Collection. Some people say they should just start their own streaming service. Just have it through the Criterion Collection website. I know people would sign up. I know they would. For the price of what you'd pay for like one Criterion DVD, if you could get access to the entire catalog to stream, I think that would be attractive to a lot of people. But then I would make an argument, and I'm not saying that this is set in stone for me, but I'm going to go back to what I was saying earlier that I actually wish maybe they were still with Hulu or that they could do a partnership with a more mainstream streaming site because I am working class. I think I have to explain to you my background. I am working class. I am from a rural area. I am just a big believer that more people should have access to these films. I just am. And I guess I'm sort of democratic or egalitarian in that way of, I want more access as much as possible for people. I want to get more people excited about these films because a big mission of this podcast is to show that arthouse cinema is for everybody. That has been one of my missions from day one. And something that's fascinating is that Filmstruck started around the time that I created this podcast. I started the podcast in late 2016. I'm about to celebrate the two-year anniversary of it. I've done over 80 episodes at this point. So the beginning of Her Head and Films coincides a lot with the beginning of Filmstruck. And Filmstruck made it possible for me to talk about these films and a big mission. I mean, I started the podcast for a lot of reasons. I didn't have anybody to talk about films with. That's what I wanted. I've also developed a really terrible writing anxiety that I haven't talked about on the podcast. So I found it very difficult to write about films because I've just, for years now, I've had a really bad writing anxiety. I can't explain it to you. I used to love to write. I I still consider myself a writer, but I'm almost debilitated by anxiety over writing. It's really difficult. So I needed an outlet to to discuss films and to explore films. And I didn't feel it with writing because of my anxiety about it. And so I decided that I wanted to talk. I just wanted to talk about these films. I wanted to talk about the way they lived inside of me. The way they saved me. The way they moved me. The way they became intertwined with my own life. I wanted to talk about this personal, passionate relationship with cinema that I have. That's what I've tried to do for almost two years now. Also, part of my mission was to say, you don't have to be an academic. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room to understand Antonioni or Kiarostami or a million other directors. Or just all you know, Ellen Klimov and Larissa Shapitko and Barbara Loden and Ingmar Bergman and Michael Haneke. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't need a film studies degree. You can you can be outside of that and you can still find something in these films that they are for everybody, that that these films that are often seen as academic and remote, and distant, and cold, and like you have to be really intelligent to understand them, or get them, a lot of them are actually not like that. That if you watch an Ingmar Bergman film, there is deep emotion there. There is deep uh, feeling in his work, and that's what I've tried to get at, that anybody from any background has a right to see these films, and to talk about them. You don't need to know special language, and you know you don't need a special degree, Krzysztof Koszlofsky is for all of us, really. He makes films about humanity and the human condition. So that's what I've tried to do every week for you. And so when I say that I wish the Criterion Collection, I wish these art house films were on something like a Netflix or a Hulu, that's why. Because I want more people to experience these films. I want there to be more revelations and more discoveries for people who are like me who maybe they didn't grow up with parents who loved art house cinema, you know, maybe they just started to get interested in it, and it gives them access to these films, it opens up this new world to them, the way that cinema has, and I think that that should be available to more people, that discovery, and that's just how I feel, and I know that some of you listening might disagree. Um, we, we need to get as many people interested in art house cinema and in preserving this history as we can because what it's really about is do we value the history of cinema? Do we value films that are about difficult things, films that are about the human condition, films that might be slower, films that might be more obscure, films that might center other types of people like women and minorities? that's part of art house cinema too. It's about do we value these stories? Do we value this legacy? Do we value silent cinema and classic Hollywood? Do we value films that are made outside of the United States and beyond the mainstream blockbuster, you know? And what are we doing to save those films and preserve those films? Because that's what's scary is. That's what Filmstruck was doing. They were making these films available to us and saving them in the process, making them relevant, bringing them back into our lives, back into our world. What happens to those films now? Do they ever find a home again? Will we ever see David Lean's The Passionate Friends streaming again? Will we see Ellen Klimov's Come and See stream again? I don't know. I know that from what I've heard on different sites, Filmstruck had quite a few films that were not even available on DVD. So what will happen to these films? Will they ever see the light of day again? Some are saying that Warner Media might create their own streaming website in the future. And maybe some of these films will end up on that. We do not know. There is so much up in the air. I grieve for this. Because Filmstruck made these films accessible to me. Because something that I've seen a lot online is a demographic of cinephiles that have a very particular experience that not everybody shares. Not everybody lives in cities. Not everybody's in San Francisco or LA or New York. Not everybody has an art house theater down the road or a repertory cinema nearby. Not everybody's in college. (laughs) There's also that very big focus that it seems like it's hard for people to understand that there are cinephiles that are not in college and we don't all have access to a university library. We don't all have access to Canopy where we live, which is a streaming service that has a lot of art house that has criterion on it. Not every library has that because it's done through your local library. I live in a rural area in the South. There's not a lot of offerings in terms of cinema. There just isn't. I don't have an art house theater down the road. I don't have a library with all kinds of art house cinema in it waiting for me to go check it out. And I think you also need to keep in mind that everybody may not have transportation to get to a library and and things like that. In a rural area, that is something you have to think about. We are all cinephiles coming from different experiences in the world. And I will always speak up. And I will always speak to the experience of a cinephile that lives more on the margins and lives more outside of the mainstream. I don't live in New York or LA. I don't live in a city. Filmstruck was how I accessed art house cinema. It was my window to those films. And now it's taken away. And it does make me sad. And I don't I don't get to go down the street to a repertory cinema. I don't have the metrograph down the road. And that's the truth. And I certainly don't have the money to buy DVDs. That's another refrain that I've been hearing. Well, buy physical, buy physical. And that's well and good if you have the money for that. Do I have a few DVDs? Yes. I have actually a big DVD collection, but it was from a decade ago when Blockbuster was around. And I used to go to Blockbuster, and they used to have um, their DVDs on sale, four for $20. So I was able to get four DVDs for $20, and that's how I accumulated my current DVD collection. But in the last few years or so, I rarely buy DVDs unless they're very cheap. Now, because of this experience, I have decided that I'm going to try to save up and buy a few of my favorite Criterion film DVDs. So, I already have The Tree of Life, which recently came out by Terrence Malick. I just ordered The Double Life of Veronique on eBay at a good price, and I'm hoping to get The Passion of Joan of Arc, and I'm also hoping to get The Three Colors Trilogy by Krzysztof (laughs) Kieślowski. Those are really important films to me. I want to have physical copies of them, but there is no way. I could buy a copy of every film that I love. I do not have the money, the space, the ability to do that at all. So while I know that people mean well when they make those suggestions, I'm not criticizing those people. I'm criticizing the idea of it that you would just that you would just tell people, "Well, go to your library and buy DVDs." When the selection at some people's library is not going to be anywhere near what Filmstruck provided with the convenience and the ease and the affordability that Filmstruck provided as well. I understand people making those suggestions. They are sound suggestions. They really are. It's good advice. If there's a film you love and you're able to find it affordable and get the DVD, you probably should do that. But if it's not an option for you, then it's not an option. And we don't need to just be attacking people or shaming people because they didn't go and buy bunches of DVDs and now Filmstruck's gone and they don't have these films. Like that's what bothers me a little bit is that it seems like an accusation or a criticism. Oh, well you should have been buying DVDs. Like if something happens to Spotify, they're gonna wag their finger. Oh, you should have been buying CDs. Well, that wasn't an option for me. You know, I don't have hundreds and hundreds of dollars to put into DVDs. And I don't have a local library that has all kinds of selection and stuff. So I would just say to people who think that way or who have said that, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying think a little bit about your own perspective and the place you might be coming from. And to try to understand that other people might be coming from a different perspective. Where they don't have an art house nearby. They don't have a, a DVD place nearby. They don't have access to the same places that you do. And they may not have as much money as you do either. We all have different experiences. But Filmstruck is going to end. Unless something happens and the petition works and they save it. And it's a sad day. October 26, 2018 is a profoundly sad and devastating day. For those of us who love these films, who were elated to have access to them, who felt enriched and transformed by these films and felt so grateful to have them in our lives because the last two years have been hard with Trump as president, with everything that we've been seeing. And there is nothing wrong with finding joy in cinema and, and having it there as a comfort Having it there as something that helps you survive. Something that saves you. So it is a sad day. It's a sad day for a lot of us. It, this is sad, horrible news. I mean, horrible. And I'm still processing it. I'm still struggling with it. I honestly feel depressed over it. Like, I've I just, I've been thinking about it and just, I can't believe it. That I will not have access to these films until we know more until we know what's going to happen in the future. Right now, it's up in the air and we don't know. But I did want to talk about it for a little while. I know I went on, but there was so much that I wanted to say. I'm grateful this service existed. I'm grateful to the people that were part of it. If any of them might happen to be listening, I have no idea. (laughs) Um, I'm glad that if any of you found out about it through the podcast, I'm really glad that I was able to let you know about it and hopefully... You saw some great films on the service. It's just I don't know what else to say. I hope that the Criterion Collection finds a home, whether it's their own streaming service or whether it's on a mainstream site. Sad it's very sad news. And it was the last thing that I really needed in my life right now because the last two years Filmstruck has really helped me and it's hard to believe we ever had it, right? Um It just, it feels, it feels like a loss. I will say that I feel like I'm in, I'm like grieving right now, not having it anymore. Cinema is just life for some of of us. Some people watch films and it's like, okay, I'm just going to sit down and watch a film. And I think a cinephile is very different. When it comes to films. Where it's it's an everyday practice. It's something that you're constantly engaged in. That you're constantly thinking about. And it's so wrapped up with your life. And your identity. And everything. I really, I valued the website. I, I I loved it. And I'll miss it. And I know a lot of you listening will miss it as well. And I just wanted to acknowledge what's happened. And I also wanted to say how important the site has been to me. Into to this podcast, and to my life. <laughs> um, it, we will continue. We will go on. I will keep talking about great and important films with you. I, my cinephilia will continue, of course. I'll just have to get it from different sites. There's just, there is no other site like Filmstruck. It just had everything there together in one place. And it it was so special. I actually had plans to use it to watch like French cinema. I was going to start from like the early days of French cinema and go through and I was going to watch a lot of like old classic silent films too. I was going to use Filmstruck for that actually because I've been exploring the history of cinema on my own. Just a personal journey it's not going to happen. I'll have to find those films in other places, obviously. So I actually just had my own plans as, as a film lover. Things that I was going to explore. I mean, I think I had 200 films in my watch list for the site. Those were all films that I wanted to see. And I, I will try to access them in other ways and find them elsewhere. So I'll stop here. Now I'm going to talk a bit about Shirley Jackson, her book, The Haunting of Hill House, and how it was the basis for Robert Wise's 1963 film, The Haunting, which is the focus of this week's episode. get into the film and talk about what I love about it and just talk about the very intense power that it has. I want to talk a little bit about the source material and I just want to talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff of making the film. So first, I want to talk about the source material because The Haunting is really based on the book The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. The Haunting of Hill House was published in 1959. Now those of you who have listened to previous episodes or maybe are a long time listener you know that I love literature, that my background is actually in literature. I went to college and studied it and my cinephilia and my love of cinema is something that developed later in my life in my 20s and I'm 29 now and I would say that I've been a cinephile since around like 2011 Really, that's when I trace it back to when I got really deeply, intensely interested in art house cinema. But for my life before that, before 2011, all those years, I really loved books. And writing and that's still a big passion of mine. The biggest passions of my life are cinema and literature. Those are the things that help me survive and they give me a sense of identity and they really enrich my life and I feel such a deep connection. So I've loved books my entire life and I'm on Goodreads and I'll put the link in the description or in the show notes of this episode. I am on Goodreads and on there you can list like your favorite books um, like in your bio and I kid you not for years now The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson has been in that list of my favorite books. There's The Lover by Marguerite Dura, there is Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, there's The Waves by Virginia Woolf, there's Ariel by Sylvia Plath, and then there is The Haunting of Hill House. This book had such a profound impact on me when I first read it, uh, probably around 2013, and it was one of the most chilling and frightening books that I've ever read. And I will argue that even though this film is very chilling and very scary, I think the book is even more frightening. There is a way that Shirley Jackson wrote the book that is just... uh, I don't even know how to put it into words. I've never had that kind of reading experience before where I was reading something and literally getting chills all over my body. It's hard to really describe the experience of reading the book. I would definitely recommend that you read the book if you're a big fan of the film. Maybe you haven't seen the film. I don't know. There are spoilers in this episode, as you know. But definitely seek out the book because I think it is a... A horror masterpiece, really. And I wrote a review of The Haunting of Hill House. It's short. And I wanted to read it because it articulates a lot that I love about it. Why I come back to it. Why it's almost like an annual read for me. That it's just a book that has become part of my own personal mythology. And that's why I wanted to linger on it. I mean, this episode is more about the film. So I'm not putting a ton of time into talking about Shirley Jackson or talking about the book. I wish I could, I really do, but I wanna devote more time to the film because I do think that this is a gorgeous adaptation of the book and that I do think that it's quite faithful to it and it's true to it. You can have an adaptation of a book that does not follow the book plot point by plot point, but that captures the essence of, Of the book, and I think that's what The Haunting does so well, is that it captures that essence. But I want to read my review of The Haunting of Hill House, so here it is. Every year I reread Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. I tell people I love Jackson because she wrote about girls like me fragile, depressed, invisible. In Hangs a Man, a girl goes to college and meets a friend who may or may not be real. In We Have Always Lived in the Castle, a town suspects a little girl killed members of her family. Similarly, the haunting of Hill House revolves around a strange young woman, Eleanor Vance, who joins a motley crew of guests assembled at a haunted house to investigate supernatural phenomena. Eleanor's invalid mother has recently died. She feels estranged from her sister. She's angry and lonely in her life. Jackson focuses on the psychology of Eleanor. The eerie happenings inside the house appear to be manifestations of Eleanor's fears and anxieties. She seems to be the agent that conjures the frightening incidents. It's the only book that gives me chills. The most terrifying scene involves Eleanor holding a hand in the darkness, but realizing that it isn't attached to an actual person. It's a phantom hand. I usually read the book around Halloween, but I realized on the most recent rereading that the story actually takes place in June. How did I miss that fact? Rereading reveals the limitations of our memory. How the mind fabricates and combines details. How a text lives and evolves like a new separate organism after we've read it. I don't often reread books, but I keep coming back to this one because I'm intrigued by the power of the dead and by the way our minds are destabilized by loss, marginalization, and loneliness. Haunted houses provide a stimulating environment in which to explore these subjects. They are not so much about the dead as about the living and our traumas. When Eleanor arrives at the house, she senses the vivid feeling that it was waiting for her, evil but patient. This seems to foreshadow the dramatic and suicidal ending. Eleanor has no one, and maybe the house senses her solitariness, knows that she lacks any defense against its grisly antics, She is vulnerable, but also willing to surrender to the great power possessed by Hill House. Maybe from the beginning she knew she would not survive, that once she was in the house's embrace, she would not leave. Life held nothing for her. Perhaps she found a home in death. So that was my review of the book. And I read it because there's actually things in that review that I'm going to come back to as I'm talking about the film. There's a lot in there that I want to dig even deeper into about grief and about Eleanor's search for home, a search, her search for a place of belonging, her mental disintegration, her psychological disintegration that happens throughout the film. Because I really think that the film is a portrait of a woman breaking down, a, bra- a woman coming apart. And you can argue that the book is similar, that that's what it's really about, is a woman disintegrating before our eyes as we read the book. It's much more about the living than the dead. I think haunted houses always are. They're always about the the living, about the people within that house and what's happening within them. I think that in a way we are haunted houses. Our bodies are haunted by trauma, and history, and loss. Everything that we've been through, by people that we've lost, by things that we've suffered. And I said that in my episode that I recently did about The Others, about the 2001 film that stars Nicole Kidman. We are haunted houses. We are haunted people. We are haunted beings. And films about haunted houses, that's what they're really exploring. They're exploring the way we are haunted. They're exploring our anxieties and our fears. The things that have their their hooks in us. The things that we can't get out of us. And so that's why I wanted to read my short review there. Because those are a lot of themes that I'm going to circle around and come back to when I'm talking about the film itself. I want to take a moment to talk about Shirley Jackson because I am an ardent fan of hers. I am an ardent admirer of Shirley Jackson. I don't feel like she really gets the attention that she deserves. And I think she was a masterful writer in so many ways. If you don't know her... Go and seek her work out. Go read The Haunting of Hill House. Go read, um... We Have Always Lived in the Castle which is about these sisters living in this crumbling house and they are suspected of killing their parents um, and hangs a man. I don't know if I'm even saying that properly. That's a really interesting book. Those are the three by her that I've read. I, I still have so many more that I need to read and I've read quite a few of her short stories as well which I really love and how can I not mention The Lottery? I mean that is her most famous story. I still remember reading it in high school. I think all of us have memories of reading that story for the first time. It's so masterful but to define her by the lottery does her a disservice. That is not the only story she wrote. She wrote so many other things and so many other novels that I think I think she gets defined by that one story and people maybe sometimes they don't go beyond it and you have to go beyond it. You have to look at her other work because she's really getting at the darkness and the danger that and the violence that lurks under everyday life and the violence and darkness that exists within ordinary people. And she often writes about women. She often writes about women who are marginalized, who have mental illness, or who are struggling with those things. Women who are seen as deviant who don't fit in and things like that. So her heroines, her protagonists, her female protagonists resonate with me a lot because I see myself in them. I see parts of myself and I saw a lot of myself in Eleanor and they change her name for the film. In the film, she's Eleanor Lance. In the book, she's Eleanor Vance. I'm not quite sure why they did that. I really identify with Eleanor. I connect a lot with Eleanor and I'll talk more about that in my review of the film. So Shirley Jackson was born in 1916 and she died in 1965 at an early age. She was only 48 and she died of heart failure. She was married to a literary critic at the time named Stanley Edgar Hyman. And I do think at times they had a tumultuous relationship. They lived in Bennington, Vermont. That's the primary place where she lived. She was well regarded in her lifetime. Her books like We Have Always Lived in the Castle and The Haunting of Hill House were quite successful, nominated for awards, and she was also known as a short story writer. But even though she was successful, she did struggle with mental illness. She had anxiety, depression. There came a time when she could not leave her house. She was housebound for many months. She was a bit paranoid about her neighbors in Vermont. That's something that I read. She also had a lot of health issues. She smoked. She was overweight. She had health issues. And she eventually had drug addiction as well. She drank, she took amphetamines, which was from what I read connected to her weight to trying to lose weight and that she actually got kind of hooked on them. So she she had a lot going on and those could be some of the things that contributed to her early death. So this was a woman who was very troubled, you know, and who suffered a lot. Mentally and physically, I'm very sympathetic towards that. Those are some things that I struggle with myself. And I think that you see some of that come out in her heroines and in the women that she wrote about, that sometimes they get paranoid. And sometimes they're dealing with mental illness and sometimes they are emotionally fragile the way that Eleanor is in the book and the movie. So I think she, I think there is some of that that comes through in her work. I've not read any biographies of Shirley and so I'm only giving you a skeleton really of this woman's life. I know that Ruth Franklin has written a biography of Shirley Jackson. It's been on my, uh, Reading list, my list to read forever. So, hopefully, one day I can dig into more biographies about Shirley and get more of a sense of her life. But there's never enough time for all these books, so definitely seek out her work. And if you're interested in her, read some biographies about her. She was a fascinating woman and she was just an exceptional writer. And I love her books, she's just one of those writers for me. I didn't know much about her when I was younger, but in the last few years in my 20s, she is a writer that I have become more and more interested in. Even though I've only read three of her books, those books had profound impacts on me. And they're they're books that you want to go back to. Like, I read The Haunting of Hill House every year or every few years I definitely want to go back and read We Have Always Lived in the Castle. There's something about her writing and her books that you just want to return to. Because they're just so rich. And they're so interesting. She is just uh, an exceptional writer. And I hope that if, if this episode does anything, I hope it gets you interested in Shirley Jackson. And I, I think she's starting to get more appreciation, you know, with Ruth Franklin's biography. And she's definitely like well-known online on the internet, I would say. I think a lot of people know her. And I do know that there's a new Netflix television show or television series called The Haunting of Hill House. They have taken the title. But I heard that it's not really, it's it's just based on it. It's not like a very faithful adaptation of it but I've I'm hearing really great reviews about it I'm definitely interested in it but I I didn't watch it before I recorded this episode so I definitely am interested in it and wanted to let you know about it as well that it is on Netflix it's called The Haunting of Hill House but do not expect it to be exactly like the book that it is very different from the book I'm not sure why they used that title and I'm not sure what the connections are to the book or the things that they've kept in the series from the book. I don't know that, but it's something that might interest you. So I want to talk a little bit about the filming of The Haunting and just some behind the scenes stuff that I read mainly from Wikipedia. Yes, you can go on Wikipedia and read all this, but instead of you having to go on there and read it, I'm just going to tell you about it. These were things that I found really interesting, and so I did want to share them in this episode. The film was shot in England at a place called Eddington Park, which is notable because the book itself is set in New England, it's not it's set in the United States, but it was actually filmed in the UK. I think that's sort of interesting. Uh, Julie Harris struggled with depression while they were filming. Julie Harris plays Eleanor Lance in the film, as many of you know. And she was actually dealing with depression as she was making the film. And she felt estranged, sort of, from her co-stars. And she had sort of issues with them. But she ended up incorporating that depression into her performance. And I have to say, watching the film for a second time, I watched the film a few years ago. And that's why I wanted to cover it, because I knew that it was something that I wanted to return to. Watching it for the second time, again, this is sometimes why I love repeat viewings. You know, some films you watch and you know, I'm going to only watch this one time. I'm never going to watch this film again. And then I think the greatest films or some of the best classic films invite you to rewatch them. Because as you, as you age, as you get older, as you go through experiences... Sometimes those films will take on a greater resonance and have a richness there because of the way that you've changed. Now, the film itself has not changed. Nothing about the film has changed, but you as a viewer have changed. And you take it into your mind and into your body in a different way. And I found that watching this film for a second time was a completely different experience. That watching it while I was depressed myself. because And I'm recording this as I'm struggling with depression. Because I'm always struggling with depression. I'm always struggling with mental illness. But to watch it in a state where I myself feel psychologically fragile. Where I feel emotionally raw. It definitely resonated with me in a different way. And you can see the way that Julie brought that to the performance. And I do think that this is one of the greatest performances that I've seen by a woman, like personally. And I I don't think I thought that the first time I saw this film. But as I was watching it this time, I realized that Julie Harris was doing something very interesting and very powerful. And I'll talk more about that. But I think it's important to note that she was struggling with mental illness as she did this. And Robert Wise wanted everything in the house to create a sense of claustrophobia. And you see that with the Rococo decorations. And you see that with the ceiling. These are not like really big vaunted ceilings. Everything about the house feels very claustrophobic I think. And if you've watched the film and you've noticed something kind of off about it visually like there's these distortions it's in this widescreen you are not imagining it it's not just you and it wasn't a mistake Robert Wise used a wide-angle Panavision camera that really was not ready to be used and it ended up creating these distortions in the film and you can definitely see that and I think it's important to note that that was on purpose I think everything about this film as you're watching it destabilizes you and and induces almost a state of anxiety. I, I can't quite explain it. I think it's one of those films that I would imagine if you saw it in a theater, it would be even more powerful. I mean, I can't imagine people who got to see it in 1963 when you got to be in a theater and the screen was huge and you were like inundated with the sounds of this film because the sounds are so powerful. The banging, the pounding, the yelling of people. Like, can you imagine being in a movie theater and experiencing that? I think it would intensify the terror of this film, absolutely. This is why in a lot of ways, I lament what's happening with movie theaters and I really think more needs to be done so that we do not lose movie theaters because there is a difference in seeing a film in a theater. But nowadays, it's so hard to see anything at a movie theater that is not a superhero film. I live in a rural area. I have a mall nearby and there's a movie theater that's part of it. Always blockbusters. Always. The haunting wouldn't even get shown in that movie theater, this kind of film. But it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating to not be able to see new releases that are independent films or art house films or whatever in a movie theater. It is just beyond frustrating for me that everything I watch, if it's Ingmar Bergman, if it's Andre Tarkovsky, if it's Agnes Varda, it's always on my laptop. And I'm not saying I hate it. I'm not saying that. It's—it's. It's, I've gotten used to it. But when I go back to a movie theater, because I recently saw A Star is Born, the one with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga... I did an episode about it for my patrons on Patreon, so that's just a taste of some of the stuff that I do on there. It was such an intense experience to see that film in a theater, and I don't think it would be the same if I had seen it on my laptop. So I just, it's so frustrating to me that I don't have access to to see the newer releases at a theater, like it just, and at an affordable price, You know, these places can be very expensive, these movie theaters. It's just so frustrating to me. And I know I went off on a tangent, but just imagine what it was like to see The Haunting in a theater. I bet that was uh, just an amazing experience. And I myself would love to have it, but I can't. Y'all, if I won the lottery, I promise you... I'd be the person opening up an art house theater in the middle of the rural damn south. Because I'm so tired of it. Like, I'm just so tired that only people in cities get access to this stuff. And then those of us who live in the country or live in the more rural parts of the, of the United States, we don't get any of this. We are so deprived of it. It drives me nuts. But I'm the person that would be opening an art house cinema in the middle of nowhere. Because that's really one of my dreams. I'd love to have a bookshop. Maybe. I'd love to have a bookstore. I think I'd be good at that. Because I do love books. But it would just be stocked with women. Like Marguerite Dura and Shirley Jackson. And Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath. <laughs> that's the only thing in like art books and film books there would be so many film books in my bookstore. I promise you, I would have to have cinema represented, but then of course I would have to have art house cinema right and i could get to choose the different films that are shown and i could like record the podcast live and have like a discussion so i love to dream like if i couldn't dream i couldn't live like i'm so much like fernando pessoa the portuguese writer who i adore and i'm i've been reading the book of disquiet again Please read the book of Just Quiet. It's a masterpiece. It's you need it in your life. New Directions recently put out um, a complete edition of it. And he talks a lot about dreaming in his writing and as a writer. He was a dreamer. And that's why I connect so deeply to to Pessoa or Pessoa. Um, Oh my god, I think I'm saying it wrong. Pessoa. Pessoa. I apologize to any. Portuguese people who are listening. I just, I butcher these names sometimes. Um, Pessoa. I think that's what it is. And I adore him. And he writes about being a dreamer, you know, how dreams are often more powerful and how he, you know, the, the characters that he takes on, you know, he had all kinds of different names that he wrote under and how dreaming is just central to that, um, to those characters' lives. And I'm the same way. I love to dream. I I do a lot of dreaming. (laughs) Probably too much, but I just like to imagine my art house theater that I would have and it would be amazing. I would love to be able to have that kind of impact on people. To say, watch this film, see this film, and maybe it can change your life. And I think that through the podcast, I hope that I have that kind of effect. I hope that I get people interested in certain films, in something like Ellen Klimov's Come and See or Larissa Shapitko's The Ascent or Barbara Loden's Wanda. I mean, I, I like to think that if I've inspired one person to seek out those films that maybe they hadn't heard of or maybe they didn't know about. And that they have an experience with them. Of course, I can't promise that you'll have the same experience that I have. But if they do and it, and it changes them or it affects them or it, it gets them interested in something, then I see that as, a, as an accomplishment, and I hope that the podcast has some kind of effect like that. On the other hand, maybe it doesn't. Who knows? So that, that's my little tangent about my art house theater <laughs> that I would love to have. Um, I don't know what I would name it, but there would be some really great films that I would show. I promise you that. So when The Halting came out, it was only a moderate success when it was released. It was not like a big box office draw. But, in the decades since then, it has become a cult classic, which reminds me a little bit of of a horror film that I covered like last year in two thousand and seventeen called Carnival of Souls by Herc Harvey, which is one of my all-time favorite horror films. And I think The Haunting has definitely shot up my list after watching it this second time. Like, this is an amazing film. And I I just, I find that I feel more connected to it. And Herc Harvey's Carnival of Souls was very similar. That it was this very low-budget, independent film that didn't make much of an impact when it first came out or when it was first made but then it got shown on television late at night for years and years and it just built up a huge cult following and people love it and now it's been released by the Criterion Collection. And so it's, it's become a really big film, a really big cult classic. And The Haunting is sort of similar. And we have all kinds of really famous directors who love this film. Martin Scorsese put it on his list of his 11 scariest films. 11 films that he considers the scariest of all time. And he put it in there. Uh, Steven Spielberg has said that the film had a huge impact on him when he saw it as a young boy. So yeah, and Robert Wise read Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House and he found the book to be very frightening. And he went to a screenwriter that he had worked with before named Nelson Gidding and he asked him to write a script for it. And that's what Getting did. Forget, but Getting, Getting imagined this story more as a mental breakdown. He saw it really as a portrait of psychological disintegration. And he saw Eleanor as someone who was going mad. And he even imagined that the story was really more about that. That she was in like an insane asylum. And that um, the people like Theodora or the doctor was actually like her psychiatrist or something. And um, Wikipedia goes more into it. But But Robert Wise and Nelson Getting went and met Shirley Jackson. They actually went up to Bennington, Vermont and talked to her. And she said, no, that's not really how she imagined the story. That she did see it as having these supernatural elements to it. But I thought that was sort of an interesting interpretation that Getting had. And I found myself thinking about it as I re-watched the film. That could it, could you interpret it that way? And I guess possibly you could. But I definitely think that it is a film about a mental breakdown. I think the film is looking at that for sure and I'll talk more about that when I go deeper into the film. When they met Jackson, she actually provided the title for the film. She just came up with The Haunting. She said that she thought that would be a really good uh really good title for it and that's what they ended up going for and I'm actually glad that they didn't use the exact title of her book because I think it helps you understand that this is a cinematic reinterpretation of the book. That this is not a film that is trying to be faithful to every single detail, although I think it's a pretty faithful adaptation. And I think it's a pretty, and I do think it captures the essence of the book for sure. And it certainly captures the fear and the terror of it as well. But I do like that they went with just the haunting. I think that's a really great title personally. Julie Harris partly took the role because she herself was interested in parapsychology. She was interested in that herself. I thought that was interesting. Robert Wise said that making the film was really the best experience of his life in terms of making a film. So he obviously enjoyed it uh, very much. So he had a really positive experience with it. So that's just some stuff that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to give you some background about Shirley Jackson. I wanted to tell you what what it was like to make the film, some of the behind the scenes, the making of stuff. Because I do find that interesting. You know, when I, I, I have a collection of DVDs, but I don't regularly collect DVDs anymore. But something that I used to love about getting DVDs was the extra features. That was part of the draw for me to get them was that you would get these making of documentaries or you'd get these Q&As with the director or even better the director's commentary. I used to love watching director's commentary or you'd get interviews with the cast and things like that. So I'm always interested in those behind the scenes details. I don't always go into them on every film that I cover some films there's not as much information out there but for the haunting there was a fair amount of information about the the behind-the-scenes stuff and how it was made. But I just wanted to linger on that and talk about Shirley Jackson, talk about the making of the film, talk about my love for the book, which is the source material, obviously. And I definitely encourage you to read that book. So now that I've talked about all that, I'm going to go deeper into this film and talk about why I think this is a really masterful film. I think that Julie Harris gives an outstanding performance. I think that a lot of the the terror of the film and the scariness of the film is about what's unseen and and what only what we can hear and what we conjure in our imaginations. I do think it is a portrait of psychological disintegration and a mental breakdown. And I feel a deep connection to the character of Eleanor. I definitely want to talk about that. Um, there's so much to talk about and so I'm going to dig into it after this really short break. I'm really excited to talk more about this film. four strangers converge on the house known as Hill House. It stood for 90 years and it has a sordid past connected to it. There's been suspected murder. There's been suicide. There's been inexplicable deaths. There's been madness. It was built originally by a man named Hugh Crane in a remote area of New England. He built the house for his wife and his daughter. Unfortunately, his wife ends up dying in a carriage accident. And this is really the first in a series of horrific things that will happen that are connected to the house. And this is why Hill House gets such a bad reputation, is because all these terrible things happen. His daughter is Abigail Crane. She grows into an elderly woman. She's very alone. She lives in solitude in this massive house. And she takes on a companion, a young woman from the nearby village to take care of her. But one evening, the girl, companion leaves for a little bit to be with a guy, and Abigail is yelling for help uh, because she's having some kind of health issue, and the companion never comes to help her, and Abigail ends up dying. Rumors start to circulate in the village that the companion actually murdered Abigail so that she could inherit the house. She does end up inheriting the house, but she is tormented by something we're not sure what and she actually ends up hanging herself from a winding staircase that's in the library of the house. The house becomes inherited by a distant relative named Mrs. Sanderson. And it is this woman that Dr. John Markway goes to and asks for permission to use the house in his own investigation of paranormal phenomena. He wants to go into a haunted house. He wants to study what happens there. And he brings assistance with him, sort of randomly chosen people, but people chosen for specific reasons. And really, it's only two people that he chooses. Because of these four people, there's Dr. Markway, obviously, and he's the investigator. And then Luke Sanderson comes uh, into the house. He's played by Russ Tamblin. and he's going to inherit the house eventually one day. So he's chosen to be there for that reason. So really only two people are specifically chosen as assistants and that is Theodora. She just goes by Theodora and Eleanor Lance. As I said earlier, in the book, her name is Eleanor Vance, but in the film, she's Eleanor Lance. And we find out through the course of the film that these two women were chosen for very specific reasons because they have already had inexplicable sort of supernatural or paranormal experiences. Theodora has ESP and Eleanor had a poltergeist incident happen when she was only three years old where stones were. Were hitting her house. So that's why some of them are chosen to be there. So these four strangers converge on this house And of course only mayhem and madness and dark things and terror end up happening. But that is really what's so fascinating partly about the film is that it's really about these four people in this creepy house and what happens while they are there. And obviously Dr. Markway chooses Theodora and Eleanor because he knows that because they've had previous paranormal experiences... That perhaps their presence in the house will activate or stimulate some kind of supernatural stuff. (laughs) And of course that is what ends up happening. But really the main attraction is Eleanor. She seems to be the one. That is conjuring and causing all of the things that happen in this sordid, diabolical, dark house. But I think the film also sort of is asking us is it really the house that's haunted? Is it really the house that's bad? Or is it the people who inhabit the house? And the meaning that they create of certain events. Is the house haunted? Did it cause the death of Hugh Crane's wife? Did it cause the death of Abigail and Abigail's companion? Or were these people who were already disturbed to some extent? Or just had really bad luck befall them? It's not clear. And the book is the same way where... And I'll try not to refer too much to the book. Because I do want to keep it on the film, obviously. But for me... What I came away with in the book and the film was this idea that really haunted houses are more of like reflections of the people who inhabit them. And they can sort of be repositories for the fears, neuroses, anxieties that those people bring with them into that space. And Eleanor is someone who brings a great deal of baggage. And Eleanor is a character that I really identify with in a lot of ways, who I'm sympathetic towards, and who I think is so strange and fascinating. And that we don't see women like this often in cinema or in literature. Eleanor has taken care of her invalid mother for a decade, She's in her early 30s and she's really lived as a recluse. She's really lived isolated and separated from the world. She's mainly just cared for her mother all these years. And her mother has recently died. And all Eleanor has is her sister. And it's clear from the beginning of the film that Eleanor has a strange, difficult relationship with her sister. And we see that in in the beginning of the film when they have this argument and Eleanor wants to take the car because she wants to go to Hill House to participate in this investigation and her sister is very cruel towards her and Eleanor decides you know what I'm just going to take the car myself so I think from the beginning we realize that we have a character who is at once fragile and ferocious that she takes that car even though her sister tells her not to even though her sister doesn't want her to Eleanor's like I helped pay for this car I'm going to take it and she has that a similar personality when she's in the house where she's obviously fragile, she's obviously struggling, but she's also very fierce in what she believes and and isn't shy about expressing her emotions. What I see in Eleanor is a character who has been isolated from the world for a very long time, who was in this very intense relationship with her mother, taking care of her mother, feeling a certain amount of resentment towards her mother, I think it's not the main focus of the film, but I do think this is a little bit about mothers and daughters, this film, or about a particular mother-daughter relationship that is a bit fraught and a bit um, toxic to some extent, because I think Eleanor feels robbed. I think she feels resentful that so much of her life was spent caring for her mother, because obviously Eleanor is alone. Whereas her sister is married already. Her husband is there with her in that opening scene between Eleanor and the sister. She might have a child, actually. I can't remember. So Eleanor has has been taking care of her mother, has been sacrificing everything to do that. Now her mother's dead. And she feels guilt about that death because she has a similar situation as the companion of Abigail earlier in the film where abigail was in need of help and the companion was out and and wasn't paying any attention and for eleanor her mother was banging on the wall I guess they share a wall between their bedrooms and every time she did that Eleanor would usually go and would usually go check on her mother but that night she didn't because she was tired and she didn't want to do it and I guess she had hit her limitation with it and of course that's the night that her mother dies. So there is some guilt there and there is some grief. Even though Eleanor seems relieved to be free of her mother, I think you don't spend 11 years with a person and just automatically you're over it when they die. I think she must feel a certain amount of guilt for what happened. And perhaps that's manifesting when she's in the house. So for 11 years, her life has really been in stasis. Her life has been dormant. She hasn't really been able to live, to go out, to date, to do all these things that women her age would probably have done by then she's a spinster she's a recluse she's alone she is mentally unstable as well she's obviously dealing with some kind of mental breakdown because of everything that she's been through because for 11 years she was taking care of her mother and now she she isn't and so I saw parts of myself in Eleanor in my own isolation from the world. In my own tendency to be reclusive and distant. In my own struggle with mental illness, I have anxiety and depression. But I do feel emotionally fragile. I do feel like the kind of person who is not able to adequately cope with life and bear the, the difficulties of life. So I do feel, you know, like... Just very fragile, very um, prone to disintegration in a lot of ways. I, I watched this film, I revisited this film for this episode at a time when I'm struggling with depression a lot, where I'm struggling with my mental health. I found myself relating even more to Eleanor just because of my life circumstances that I'm very close to my mother. For the past 12 years, I've lived with my mother. That is my life. I talked about this in more depth on the episode about Yasajira Ozu's film Late Spring, which is about a young woman who lives with her father and takes care of her father and wants to continue doing that but her father feels like she should get married and she should leave and she should have her own life. And I I took that story and I talked about my own relationship with my mother who I'm extremely close to. Probably closer than most mothers and daughters are because my life is with her and I live with my mom. I don't date. I don't have any desire to have a life separate from her or independent of her. My mom does have health issues that she struggles with but she's not an invalid and I don't take care of her. You know, I just want to be with her and I want to have a life with her. And um we're just very close because when I was 16 years old my father died. And this was in 2006 and it was a traumatic event. It's one that I come back to in a lot of episodes on this podcast all the time because it's this thing that I circle and orbit around is this trauma that happened to me when I was 16. And how I don't know how to cope with it. And how so much of the damage that was done to me happened at that age. And happened with that experience. And everything was taken away from me. And I've lost so much in the years since then. Because my grandmother died the next year. And then my uncle died a couple years later. So all these people died within like a three-year period. And it was very devastating to me and my mom because... She lost her husband, she lost her mother, and she lost her brother within three years. From 2006 to 2009. And that does something to a person. And it changes you. And when you go through something like that with another person. Only they understand. And we have been each other's rock. We have been each other's support system. We have been everything to each other. We didn't have family that came in and was kind and and helped us. In fact it was the opposite. And I've talked about that as well. That I don't have a good family. It's just me and my mom. For the most part. And we're on our own. And we're trying to survive the world. As best that we can. With this grief and this pain. And what it's done to our bodies. And and what it's done to our minds. We just live for each other. And that's the love that we have for each other. She's just. She's my mother. But she's so much more than that. And I don't know how to make people understand that. Because it probably sounds so strange. That I live with my mom and of course we make that sound pathetic. You know we always describe people who live with their parents as pathetic and sad and I would obviously argue something different that if you have a deep connection with a parent or with both of your parents and you love being with them and that's the life that you want, whose business is it? And who who has the right to judge that? Not all of us are interested in romantic love. That is not the only love that exists in the world. There are other types of love, other types of meaningful relationships in people's lives. And they're just as valid and valuable. So I'm very close to my mother. I don't have that hatred that I think... Eleanor might have because she feels like having to care for her mother robbed her of other experiences and held her back in life. But I'm not going to say, you know, life is always perfect. You know, you have your issues with people no matter how much you love them. But for the most part, me and my mom get along really well. Do we argue at times? Do we fuss? Of course, who doesn't? But the core of our relationship is always love and kindness and support. But I feel like Eleanor's relationship with her mother is much more complicated, where she just feels really resentful and like she was robbed of things. But I also think maybe she constructed her identity off of that relationship. And now that it's been taken from her, maybe she doesn't know quite what to do with it. (laughs) She doesn't, like, here she is, and and I get the sense that her interest in Hill House and her escaping to Hill House is is a product of that. She says throughout the film that she's always waited for something to happen, that she's been waiting for something big and exciting and extraordinary. To happen to her. And so I think that's part of it as well. Her interest in Hill House. That she wants to get out of the mundane aspect of her life. The day in and day out of caring for somebody. The being in the house. The not having any kind of life. Just how tedious and boring that must have been. How monotonous it must have become to do the same things every day. To be around the same person every day. And Hill House promises her excitement and adventure and something extraordinary and different and something outside of all of that and I think it sort of beckons to her um, and she can't resist it but I think she's also a self-destructive person and perhaps she's attracted to that darkness and she's attracted to the danger of the house because she she doesn't know how to live anyways she doesn't fit in the world she doesn't have friends and a support system, and a great family. She has nothing, really. She is this woman who is completely untethered, and she's lonely, and she's tormented, I think, by that. What is there in this world for her? What is there in this life for women like that? For women who don't fit in. For women who are strange and different and reclusive and spinsters. Women who are fragile and ferocious. Women like me. Women like Eleanor. What What place is there for us? I think she's in search of a home, but I think she's a woman that belongs nowhere and that has no place. But Hill House represents a possible home for her because near the end of the film, she doesn't want to leave. You know, she just doesn't want to leave this house. She feels attracted to it, magnetized to it. And really what she's attracted to is her own death, Her own obliteration. I think that's always the conflict in Eleanor between life and death. Between staying alive, living through the torment and the pain that she feels, and the mental disintegration that she's enduring, or to escape into death. And maybe death is an escape. Maybe death is a kind of home for her. And I think Theodora kind of says something like that at the end, after Eleanor has driven into the tree, and basically killed herself and died. I think Theodora says something like, well, maybe she's better off. Maybe this is what's best for her because there is such a sense with Eleanor that she doesn't fit. I don't think she knows what to do. Like, I think sometimes in the film, she's trying to connect to Theodora, you know, or maybe she wishes she was more like Theodora. And in the book, this comes out much more her jealousy of Theo But also her attraction to Theo. And I think there's both there. You know where she wishes she was like Theo. Uh, At one time in the book she wants to come live with her. I think Eleanor is a woman in search of a home. She's in search of a new beginning. Of a fresh start. I think for Eleanor it's never an option for her to go back to her sister. I don't think that's ever an option. So in a way her drive to Hill House is a one-way drive. It's like if she had gotten on a plane, it would be a one-way ticket. She has no interest in going back to her life. There is nothing left of her life anymore. Her mother's dead. She really has no connection to her sister. It's not the life that she wants anymore. She wants Hill House. Even though the whole time throughout the film, she's terrified of the house. When she first arrives... She's already in her mind talking about how scary it is, how she should leave when she gets there in her mind, because the whole film uh, includes narration um, by Julie Harris as though we were inside the mind of Eleanor. And I actually think this was a brilliant move by Robert Wise to include that in the film. I don't know if it would be as powerful to not have that narration because you have a direct link and connection to Eleanor's psychology and to Eleanor's thoughts and you're sort of immediately inside her head and I just think it's brilliant and it gives you a much deeper sense of this character and when she arrives at Hill House she says, Get away from here. Get away at once. She has this bad feeling about the house, but she does not leave. She can't leave. She has to go through with this. That's what's so fascinating about the film is that she could leave. Nobody's making her stay there, but she has to go through with this. She's just so drawn to it, and so she just has to. And at another time, she says... I'm like a small creature swallowed whole by a monster. When she goes into the house, she has this sense that the house is swallowing her. The house is consuming her. And she cannot free herself from its clutches. She's almost in love with death. She's almost in love with darkness. She's in love with her own destruction and obliteration because I think she is disintegrating. I think she is having some kind of breakdown. But I think it's very interesting at the end. She says, I'm home. I'm home. It's when she runs to the library. She's saying how she never wants to leave. And she says, I'm home. I'm home. That stunning sequence at the end where she's in her nightgown and um, Mrs. Markway has disappeared into the house and we don't know what's happened to her and this is when Eleanor's break from reality really becomes clear and she's running around the house she's dancing and then she goes into the library and goes up and runs up the staircase before Dr. Markway follows her and, and gets her to come down and then forces her to leave the house. But she feels like she has to be there. That this is her home. I think what's fascinating about the story too is that I don't think you ever fully understand Eleanor. I don't know if you ever fully understand her motivation or why she has to be there. Or why she's so attracted to this house. Or I guess it just depends on your own interpretation or your own emotional reaction to the film. I myself can't totally understand it. Why, do, why is she so obsessed with the house? Why does it have this hold on her. I don't think it it can be fully explained, but I think she's a woman who, you know, for 11 years, she's been so confined. She's been so limited, and maybe that took a toll on her. And often caretaking is on the is on the women. It's something that women often have to do. That it was obviously expected of her to take care of her mother. And nobody cared what kind of toll that took on her. And nobody probably even helped her or asked how she was or asked what she was going through. She's someone who's been isolated for so long. Isolated in in the home with her mother and isolated within herself and in her mind. And I think the death of her mother is some kind of rupture in her life. And she cannot cope with it. And she flees from it. She flees from her mother's house. She flees from her sister. Flees from her old life. And goes to Hill House in search of a home. In search of a fresh start, a new beginning. In search of something else. But at the same time, I think she's coming apart at the seams. And I think that's very clear. She's paranoid. She doesn't fully trust the people around her that are in the house. She is the target in the house. Think of all the the things that happen in it. She is the main focus of this ghost or or of this thing that is in the house. I mean at one point even Theo says that the house is calling to Eleanor. They're they're getting they're lost in the house. They're trying to find a door to get out and then something happens and Theodore Theodora says that the house is calling to Eleanor. I thought that was a powerful moment that the other people sense Eleanor's own fragility and sense her own susceptibility to what's happening in the house. And how Eleanor's emotional breakdown or her state of mind is affecting the house itself. That the house is almost reflecting Eleanor's anxieties and fears in a way. And of course on the walls there's that chalk drawing help Eleanor come home. And Eleanor is horrified because she says this thing knows my name. This house wants her. It wants to consume her. It wants to destroy her. She becomes the target of its wrath. And I think Julie Harris, like I said earlier, I don't know if it if the her performance quite um quite moved me or astounded me as much the first time I saw the film. But watching it for this second time, I really think this is in my horror canon now. Like this is a film I would definitely like go around recommending to people. I think her performance is incredibly powerful. Because she's playing Eleanor on a lot of different levels. She's playing Eleanor sometimes as very normal as, you know, talking to Dr. Markway and sort of flirting with him at times. There's certainly this sense that Eleanor has a crush on the doctor and she doesn't know he's married until his wife shows up. So perhaps she's already envisioning another life that she could have. Because I think she desperately wants another life. She wants any life except her own. And that's something I can relate to as well. That sometimes I get so mad about my life. I feel like such a failure. And I feel ashamed of who I am. And I feel like I've done nothing with my life. That I've just wasted it. I just feel like I'm nothing. That's what depression does to you. It just sort of extinguishes anything inside of you. Your your thoughts. Your soul. You know. Any kind of passion that you have. And it tells you that you're the worst. That you're terrible. Depression is like it's like the the thing in in hill house this thing that's trying to obliterate you this thing that's trying to destroy you you know it's this thing inside your mind and that just haunts you perpetually and convinces you that you are the worst that you're nothing that you're worthless and that's something that i struggle with so much and you're just never free of it you're never free of it it might go dormant it might quiet for a little while but then it roars back to life that's what depression is for me that I'll go through periods where it's not as bad and then all of a sudden it's there and it's been there since I was a child you know it's that monster in the closet that monster under the bed but it's inside of you it's in like the recesses of your brain and your body it's there all the time and you're never free of it and I think that's what people who don't have depression or mental illness don't understand is That it's always part of you. Its intensity may change. It may diminish for a little while. And then it flares up. But you have to live knowing that this thing is in you. And you can't get it out. And you can't ever be free of it. And I wonder if that's what makes Eleanor suicidal. I mean, for me, maybe there's a metaphor here. At least for me in my experience of depression, I'd never want to speak for other people. Depression is different for every person. And I can only describe it in my own experience and in what I go through this is something I've lived with since I was a child and it's like no one can do anything about it people can care about you people can extend their help and extend their hand but there's only so much that they can do it's in you it's something that you are having to deal with and struggle with and it doesn't always put you in your best state of mind you're not always your best self when this takes you over and consumes you when you just feel so worthless and you just you want it to go away. You don't want to die, but you just want the pain to stop. And maybe that's also part of Eleanor, that she just wants an escape, maybe. She just wants to escape her life. I, I relate to her a lot, and I think what Julie Harris did with this role, as I was saying, she plays Eleanor frantic and hysterical, and yelling, and mad, and then she can play Eleanor as docile, and flirting with the doctor, and cracking jokes, and just trying to, um, you know, appear normal, I guess you could say. The thing about what's happening inside of Eleanor is that it's all inside. That's what the the narration And the voiceover conveys to us is that inside of Eleanor, things are breaking down. Things are disintegrating. Things are not right. She is breaking apart. In, in certain ways, but she's hiding it from the people that she is with. And that maybe it really only shows itself when these haunting experiences happen. Like when her name is put on the wall in chalk, she just becomes very upset about it. And there are two instances, I think, in the film where there are these huge, loud sounds and loud bangings. And I really want to linger on what makes this film so terrifying because it's very unconventional in that it shows very little. It's not a film that shows a lot of gore or violence. This is the kind of film that first of all is much more psychological and it's about horror that's happening within the minds of the characters. But it's also about like the unseen horror, the invisible horror. And that's created through the sounds, through the the banging and the pounding and the moaning um, that Eleanor and the other people in the house hear on different nights. Like I said before, can you imagine being in a movie theater with those poundings happening? What that does, because one night Eleanor and Theodora are together, and Luke and Dr. Marquay get distracted and they get lured out of the house. They think that they hear a dog or something in the house, and so. They go outside to look for it. While they're away, that's when the pounding begins on the walls of Theodora and Eleanor's room that they're in together. This pounding is just like concussive almost it's like this huge cacophony of bangings and poundings and that's really the most frightening thing that happens in the film are these sounds these noises but what that does is that it forces you as the viewer to imagine what could be making those sounds you're not shown a ghost you're not shown anything at all i mean Nothing even like flies across the room or anything like that. It is just the sound of the pounding. And that's it. And that's part of the horror of it. And at one time, there's another scene where Eleanor hears like a baby moaning or like a child like a child is being tortured or hurt and she hears people yelling and moaning well where are those sounds coming from who's making those sounds and in the darkness she thinks that she's holding Theo's hand and she's not like she talks about how Theo is just squeezing her hand to death you know holding on for dear life Theo Theodora is on the other side of the room and she's like what was holding my hand she doesn't know and that scene in the book gave me chills, and it still gives me chills, like just talking about it. It's just, I don't even know what to say. To me, that's terrifying. I mean, some people who are really into the gory stuff or the, you know, seeing viscera and guts and stabbings and blood, and they may go to the haunting and not really like it. If you're looking for blood and guts, this is not the film for you. I also love that the film was done in black and white. I think that um, amplifies the creepiness of the house. Because I think some of those Rococo decorations would not have looked quite as scary in color. I think black and white absolutely gives it that creepy, terror-inducing feel, you know. But the sound of the film is, is where the horror is and where the terror is. And therefore, it requires much more work on the part of the audience to construct in your mind, to imagine in your mind what the source of that horror could be. And I think that makes it a very effective film for me personally. Because each of us are going to imagine different things. And sometimes it's the things that you can't see that are more terrifying. It's what you imagine in your mind. Often that can be more scary or... or you know, or more horrific than the actual thing itself instead of them trying to show you a ghost or show you this or that for you to imagine it in your head. And we also experience the horror through the characters, through Eleanor's face, because so much of the film is about Eleanor's reaction. It's about the character's reaction to these sounds, to this phenomena that is happening, and I think Dr. Markway says quite a few times that it's really the fear that kills people, that no person in human history has ever been killed really by a ghost. It's the fear that kills people, It's the terror that takes over their bodies. And perhaps that's also the fuel for these things, for whatever this force is, is that perhaps it feeds off of that fear that people have of it. And so much of the film is, much of the terror is created also through the characters' reactions to what they're hearing. And then, of course, what they're imagining from these sounds. I think there is something terrifying about hearing, hearing yelling or moaning or just hearing pounding and not knowing what it is. I think there is something very scary about there being sounds that you don't know the origin of. Like after my father died, I got deathly afraid of airplanes, of hearing airplanes in in the sky. I can't explain it. (laughs) <laughs> after he died, I went through, I basically was going through a mental breakdown and mental disintegration. So that's another thing that I have in common with Eleanor. And I don't think it's any surprise that she's going through this after the death of her mother. Whether she had a tumultuous relationship with her or not, the death of a parent is deeply traumatic and it leads to a complete destabilization of you and a complete disintegration for some of, for some of us, for me. I did have a mental breakdown. I think I had many of them, honestly. Um, I became agoraphobic and I still struggle with agoraphobia to this day. I had panic attacks. I had depression um, and I had these sort of irrational fears at times. And one of them was when planes would go over my house and they would be very, very loud. And I would just, I would cover my ears. My heart would start to race I would become terrified that a plane was going to hit my house. I also got really afraid of tornadoes. Um, I mean, I'm from North Carolina. Tornadoes are not really a thing there. The way they are maybe in other parts of the country. But when there would be like severe weather or severe thunderstorms, it was something that I was deathly afraid of. And I I still have that fear actually. Because I now live in a state that actually does get tornadoes. So it's really... um, It causes a lot of anxiety for me when that happens. When there's severe thunderstorms or warnings or tornado watches, I find that my anxiety just skyrockets like through the roof. There was actually a bad tornado earlier this year near where I live. So it was... Really deeply disturbing and upsetting for me. So, a lot of my fears and phobias come out of my father's death because it was such a destructive experience and it was so traumatic to my mind and body. And so, I think you definitely see that with Eleanor that this is a woman coming apart, you know? So, These sounds just being there and not knowing what's causing them and not knowing where they're coming from and they're loud and like to me that is scary. I think that is a scary experience. Even though you're not being physically harmed, it's what you create in your mind. Just like when I would hear those planes going over and if they got really loud, I was already creating in my mind this catastrophic image of a plane hitting my house and killing me. I was terrified. I was terrified of dying after my father died I was terrified that my mother would die it was just terror and fear and just all of that and I still live with it like I still struggle with these things 12 years have passed and it doesn't matter these things don't just go away and when you don't have insurance what kind of help do you get what kind of access to treatment do you get here in America that's not an option if you don't have health insurance and I don't so it's something that I've just had to work through (laughs) I've literally just had to save myself I've literally had to find ways to cope and to save myself and to live but some days I'm just barely getting by I'm using all of my strength and energy to get through the day and I don't always have much left Sometimes I have nothing left and I don't think people have any idea what I go through on a daily basis and they will never understand it, but I know what I go through and I have to live with it. I have to live inside of my mind and my body. Nobody else does and I've had to find a way to live and survive and I don't always do a great job at it and sometimes I reach my limits and sometimes I just can't do it and it's hard and so I see a lot of myself in Eleanor. I see a woman who just can't take anymore. Where she's taken so much for over a decade. So much has been asked of her and demanded of her. And she's coming apart. She's really disintegrating before our very eyes in a lot of ways. And I have a lot of sympathy for her. And I can understand why those sounds would be terrifying. And I think they are scary in the film. I think so much of the terror and the horror of the film is what is unseen. And what we do see is more like just these rooms with the Rococo decorations and the low ceilings and that sense of claustrophobia. And of course, the camera that Wise used that created these distortions, which is really destabilizing as you're watching it. So he just does so many fascinating things in the film. So he's using sound, but he's also using the image to create horror as well and to create a sense of fear. And the camera angles was something else that I noticed throughout the film that so much of the film is Julie Harris and her and the character's reactions to these sounds and this phenomena but more than that Julie Harris's reactions where she's screaming where she's covering her mouth where she looks absolutely terrified and that in itself is very terrifying as a viewer I think to see the way that Eleanor is processing what's happening and to see her own fear and her own terror in the way that julie harris acts it she absolutely brings eleanor's terror to life because this is really a woman being tormented by this house being targeted by it having this thing touch her hand having her name written on the walls i mean can you imagine this thing that you can't see that you don't know what it is and yet It's locked on you and it's after you. I would imagine that would be very terrifying. And that's what Eleanor's going through. And that's what Julie, I mean, Julie Harris really gives us a great performance. Like she gives us a portrait of psychological disintegration. A woman who is buckling, you know, a woman who is losing it to a certain extent and going mad. But she always plays Eleanor in a way that I think is very genuine And sympathetic at the same time. But she brings a lot of complexity to that role, I think, of a woman who is inside her own mind, sort of tormented by her own mind. I think that definitely comes through in that performance as well. I mean, this is really a woman being terrorized right before our eyes, and I think Julie Harris brings that to life. In a very powerful way. And there is a scene in the film that uh, that brings up the idea that Eleanor is imagining all this. That there, you could make, I guess, this interpretation. She's talking to Dr. Markway. And she says, what if she's imagining the haunting? And he tells her, well, three other people have been here and have seen it. And then she says, what if she's imagining those three people? What if she's insane? So the film raises the possibility that... We are seeing a straightforward film about a haunted house or perhaps we're seeing a woman's madness. We're seeing a woman who is imagining all of this, that she's imagining the house and the people and all of that and hallucinating the entire story. So that is certainly a different interpretation of the film. But for me, this is really a look at a woman having some kind of breakdown. Whether she's really in the house and all of that's happening or she's imagining the whole scenario, it's a woman who has lost touch with reality in a lot of ways. And I think perhaps that happens because of the death of her mother. Because of the guilt that she feels Because she wasn't there to help her mother. And obviously the grief of losing a parent. But also what having to take care of her mother. And what those 11 years have done to her psychologically and to her life. That they isolated her from people. They made it so that she did not have much of a life. That she was just caring for her mother and she had nothing else. And maybe her trip to Hill House is like a defiance. It's a resistance on her part. That she finally wants to live. She doesn't want to hide in the house anymore with her mother. She doesn't want to hide anymore, period. She wants to live. She wants to be a part of something. She goes from just taking care of her mother to going to meet these three other people. I think she wants belonging. I think she wants connection. I think she wants other people in her life. I think she wants a new life or a new start to some extent. She wants to live. She wants something extraordinary to happen to her. And I think I'm like that to some extent. That I keep waiting for something to happen. That I've always waited. Just waited for something to happen. That I've been so passive in my own life, that I've just never been an active participant in life. I've just always been so passive. It's why I relate to characters like Eleanor. It's why I relate to somebody like uh, Wanda in, in Barbara Loden's film, called Wanda that character is profoundly passive in her own life and that's something that I talked about in my episode that at the time when it came out in 1970 a lot of feminists did not like the film because it didn't show a woman who was like an active agent a woman who was strong and independent and capable and I argued then and I argue now that that's not every woman's story that some of us struggle and some of us are passive, and some of us are not empowered. (laughs) That's not how every woman experiences the world, where she feels brave and strong and empowered. Some of us, and it's not just women, you know, it's men too, have been through trauma. Some of us have been through loss, poverty. There are things that we've been through that have stripped us bare, that have wounded us so deeply that we cannot speak about it, that we can't bear it, that every day we we have to bear the unbearable of what happened to us. And so, like Eleanor, we just wait for something to happen we wait for something to change. We wait for things to get better. We wait for our dreams to come true. Or we wait for something great to happen to us. And it never comes. And we just keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And I get so tired of waiting. And yet I don't know what else to do. Because I am terrified of of acting. I'm terrified of, of making a decision, of making the wrong decision. I'm just terrified in general. My life is so defined by fear. And I think Eleanor going to Hill House is like, it's her first action. (laughs) I think for 11 years, she's been very passive and very withdrawn. She's receded from the world. And when she takes that car and she yells at her sister, she talks back, she fights back. That's Eleanor fighting, you know, that's Eleanor coming back to life, maybe. She's, she's alive again. She makes a decision. She wants a different life. She wants something else. She wants Hill House. This is the decision that she has made. This is what she wants and she goes after it. And she gets in that car and she drives there and she has to like fight her way in. The The caretaker named Dudley doesn't even want to let her in. And she says, you let me in right now. She finds her moxie, right? Like she finds her voice. She gets intense. You know, she raises her voice. She does a lot of things that women are not supposed to do. She talks back. She fights back. She says, you let me in. I'm here Dr. Markway is expecting me. Open this gate. Unlock it. She's not going to take no for an answer. In a way, she's going after what she wants. But what she wants is Hill House. What she wants is her own destruction. Her own obliteration. Because I think women like Eleanor burn too brightly. You know, they, they burn too much inside. They want too much. They yearn for too much. They are too much. They sort of overflow the bounds, I think. They're unruly. I've talked a few times about like a cinema of the unruly woman, you know, women who don't fit these boxes. They don't fit into these gendered expectations of what a woman should be. And that doesn't always have to mean that you're empowered or that you're strong. That doesn't interest me quite as much. I'm talking about women who are maybe unlikable, who are mad and angry, or women who are, depressed or anxious or women who are passive women who don't fit women who are off center in some way and marginal and marginalized women that we don't always have to necessarily like or relate to but maybe sometimes we do see parts of ourselves in them and i i think i do see eleanor in that way there's like a spark in her when she gets to hill house she is electrified by it she's electrified i guess By the danger of it. And maybe she wants to finally confront that head on. I don't know. These are just my thoughts. and Some of my interpretations. But I find it very interesting how she just gets this fire in her. She just is in love with Hill House. It has this spell on her. Where she thinks of it as her home. And I don't think we can quite explain her attraction to it. I think it could be a product of being isolated for so long and wanting excitement, wanting danger, wanting something different, something completely different from the life that she has had for so long. Taking care of her mother, being a dutiful daughter, being a good girl, doing everything that was expected of her even though it drained the life out of her. Maybe she doesn't want that anymore. She wants to drive through the gates and go into Hill House go into something dark and deep and delicious and dangerous. Like I think of the ending of of The Witch, right? You know, there's that really great film and it's like how the daughter is attracted to being a witch because witches have this power and this danger and they live in this really deliciously dangerous, um, fascinating way. They break all the rules, and maybe that's what Eleanor wants for once. Maybe she just, she wants that darkness. She wants that danger. Because when she's in proximity to it, it makes her feel more alive. And she finds a home in it. She finds a home in this darkness. She finds a home in this house of madness and suicide and murder that everybody wants to run away from Hill House. Everybody flees it. The The caretakers won't even stay there when it's dark, they want to flee. They want to escape. They they don't even want to be there because it scares them and chills them. And Eleanor is completely open to it and desires it and wants it. She wants to be in Hill House. She wants that danger. She wants something extraordinary. In the book, she wants her cup of stars. There's this great scene where this little girl is, she wants her cup of stars. She has like this special cup That she wants to drink out of from home. That I think has stars on it. And I think Eleanor in the book says something like. Yeah hold out for your cup of stars. Don't let them take your cup of stars. That's what Eleanor wants. You know she wants something extraordinary. And I think she's very defiant in that way. And and think about the ending. That is her taking control of her life. You know when she kills herself. Isn't that almost like an act of. Taking back her life. She's not necessarily, I mean, she's taking her life if you interpret it as suicide or if you interpret it as the house killing her the way that it killed hugh crane's wife but it's not just her taking her own life but perhaps taking back her own life of saying you want me to leave i'll leave on my own terms i mean think about how daring that is at the end when you know she's gone up the staircase like the whole sequence at the end is fascinating because she's really just completely defiant she's in her nightgown she's running around the house She goes up the staircase, she's dancing, she's like this mad woman, but she's free. There's this liberation about her. She doesn't have to be good little dutiful Eleanor anymore. Now she's dancing and and all of that, and she's going up the staircase, and there's this life and excitement about her, even though she's basically out of her mind, but there is I don't know, there's something beautiful about it. I don't know what that says about me, but she has completely just thrown off the chains in a way and just let herself have this and be this and and go into like the recesses of Hill House. That's what she wants. She wants to belong to this house. There's something almost erotic about it, right? Like there's just like, she has to have this house. She wants to belong to it. And she goes up the staircase and she doesn't want to come down She's tired of people telling her what to do. For 11 years, she was at her mother's beck and call. For 11 years, she did she did everything that was asked of her, everything that was expected of her, and she's tired of it. She's tired of people telling her what she can and can't do. Other people controlling her life and controlling her, which is what a lot of women go through. of People telling us who to be and what to wear and how to act and then blaming every bad thing that happens to us on our own actions and, and things when they're imposing these things on us. You know, be a good girl. Do this. Do that. She's tired of it. And for once at the end, she doesn't listen to them. She does what she wants to do. She wants to go up that staircase. She eventually comes down. But then Dr. Markway says, well, you have to leave. And she's like, guess what? I ain't leaving. (laughs) That's what she does. You know, Luke gets out of the car because he's gonna go with her as she's leaving and she's like bye and she guns it (laughs) and um she drives off and she just leaves them behind she's like you're not gonna tell me what to do this is this is a big moment for her you know, she's tired of being told what to do and she's tired of being controlled and dominated, I think. And she takes the wheel. She drives herself into that tree. I mean, she seems to be really startled by, uh, by Mrs. Markway who appears out of the darkness because she got lost in the house and then ended up outside. But Mrs. Markway says that she, that Eleanor was already running into the tree before she came out. So there is this implication that Eleanor was killing herself herself and it's up to the viewer whether you think that was voluntary or the house was doing that to her and had that power over her but she is taking back her life in a certain way she's making decisions you know and she's tired of being told what to do and how to live she wanted to stay at the house and they wouldn't let her and so she decided well I'm gonna stay here and she ends up dying. So this is like such a fascinating film to me. I mean, I don't know if I'm bringing all the threads together. I wouldn't say I have a particular, particular interpretation of it. You know, I think it's just, I wanted to talk about it and give some of my thoughts about it. It all centers around Eleanor for me. Her is a character. She fascinates me. Because I do think she is this woman disintegrating, having this breakdown in a way, but maybe that breakdown is necessary. Maybe that breakdown is more of a transformation. That who she was for 11 years, taking care of her mother, is not who she can continue to be anymore. That the death of her mother is a rupture and that she, she has to change. She can't be who she was before. But the death of her mother is also a destabilizing thing, I think. And I do think there's guilt in her and I do think that there's grief and I do think that there's something happening you know like a mental breakdown that's happening for her as well so I think there's just a lot going on I don't know like I wouldn't say I have one theory or one interpretation of the film but I do think there's also something defiant about what she does in driving to Hill House in demanding to be a part of it in becoming an active participant in her own life to a certain extent Even though I guess you could argue that the house is really controlling her. I don't know. It's interesting. I I just, I think the film works on a lot of different levels. And I think that Julie Harris just gives a pitch perfect performance. A really extraordinary performance as a woman coming apart, but a woman also who knows what she wants and who also is fighting back to a certain extent and who has this desire for danger, this desire for darkness and a desire for this house. And we don't quite understand her obsession with it or her attraction to it. So what I love about the film also is, is those mysteries. That there are certain things about it that will remain mysterious. Like the noises. We don't know where they came from. What their origin are. And things about the characters that will remain mysterious as well. But it's okay for there to be unanswered questions. And it's okay for there to be mysteries. I think probably the greatest horror films really hold m- mystery within them and you can't always quite put into words why a, horror film's- why a horror film affects you in a particular way. I mean for me it's My very deep identification and connection with Eleanor. My own struggles with mental illness. My own past experiences. And I I think I sort of understand women like Eleanor. Or I feel like I am a woman like Eleanor. I guess you could say. And I feel that about so much of Shirley Jackson's work that I've read so far. Is that I do feel like she wrote about women who were different. And on the margins. And strange. And sort of obscene. And disgraced. (laughs) And who weren't, you know, perfect little women. Women who had deep flaws and contradictions and complexities and um, weren't always very likable, right? So I love her work, love this film, love the source material of the book The Haunting of Hill House, and I've really enjoyed talking about it with you, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode as well, and I hope that you found some value in my commentary. I really liked sharing it. And I really liked exploring this film and thinking more deeply about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.